0: Amen. Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles this Lord's Day to Exodus chapter 10. Uh, Exodus chapter 10 will be our text as we continue to walk through the plagues in Egypt. If you've been with us, uh, this is part of a, a greater study. We've been walking through the book of Exodus. Uh, we've been walking recently through the plagues. And as we walk walked through the plagues, we have seen how God is teaching a lesson. He is teaching Pharaoh uh, that he is the one true God. Uh, Pharaoh believed himself to be God, the Egyptians worshipped him as God, so the, the plagues are a, a series of lessons for Pharaoh to learn that, that God is the one true God, the God of the Hebrews, and that he, Pharaoh, is not God. And we looked last week at how God has also established this sequence of plagues in order to bring people to repentance. Uh, God reminds the people there in Exodus chapter 9 that he could have just wiped out Uh, pharaoh and the egyptians whenever he wanted to but he's allowed them to live through these plagues so that they might repent and draw near to him and we will see as these plagues conclude soon how god is drawing people to repentance Uh, but there's another reason for the plagues one that we're going to look at today god is doing this so that his people might learn some things that they might remember some things, that there might be lessons throughout the generations of God's people, even us today, who would look back on God's Word, look at the plagues, and, and learn from them. And specifically, he says in the text today that there are things we need to teach our children about the plagues that God brings upon Egypt. And so today, I want us to look at those lessons. You can see I've titled this sermon, Lessons from the Locust. These are things that we need to make sure we are passing on to our children and to our children's children about what we learn about God. And we're going to look at that through the context of this eighth plague, the locust that God brings upon Egypt. And so, out of reverence for God's Word, if you're able to, if you would stand as I read this Word for us today. And this is what God's inspired Word says to us. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go unto Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country. And they shall cover the face of the land, so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail. And they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh's servant said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God, but which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old, we will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go the men among you and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. And then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locust, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been seen before nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land, so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the field and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, throughout all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God, against you. Now therefore forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove his death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord. And the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. If you would, pray with me. Father, as we come to yet another text that tells us of another plague, it is easy for our minds and our hearts to drift. It is easy for us to think we have have learned all there is to learn about these plagues that you have brought in the past upon Egypt. Lord, we find ourselves easily in that line of thinking, drifting towards having a heart hardened towards your word. And so I pray, Lord, that you would soften our hearts today, that you would keep us from distractions, that we would see very simply and clearly the gospel of Jesus Christ and the call to repent and believe. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Our youngest child uh, turned 10 this week there she is she moved there yes that has been a time of reflection for uh, me and for sandy as we have thought about uh, we're out of the single digits now Uh, we know we still have uh, a ways to go but we've crossed that marker at least our oldest is preparing to go to college next year our youngest isn't as young as she once was and so Uh, as we've thought back on these things I've been thinking just about uh, the things we've taught them the things we've tried to teach them the things we still need to teach them Uh, for those of you with children in this same age range grandchildren you know that that teaching our children teaching our grandchildren uh, isn't something you just sign up to do one day and you're done Uh, there are things that you teach over and over again in fact as you teach them something, then you find yourself reminding them of it over and over again. And there's this, this constant reminder. And so kids, you can probably identify with feeling like your parents tell you the same thing over and over again. And it seems like it gets kind of old. But there's a purpose to that. We are forgetful people. And we, adults, as well as we children, need to be reminded of things over and over again, least we forget God has given us in His Word a series of reminders. He has given us in His Word the Gospel of Christ over and over again. Because the Gospel is not something we can just hear one time and never need to hear it again. The Gospel is something we need to be reminded of often. That's why as we gather each Lord's Day, I I hope you are attentive to how much we sing about the Gospel. When we sing songs, when we select these songs, these hymns, we're very intentional about making sure that we are reminding one another over and over again of the grace and the mercy and the goodness of God, of our condition as man, our lostness and our desperate need for a Savior, and of what we just sang of, of the glory of Jesus Christ. We need to be reminded of these things, lest we forget, like so many others, who have been taught the gospel, but no longer live according to it. So many who once heard it, but have walked away from it. God's word is very intentional. The Lord himself is intentional in making sure that we know how important it is to remind future generations of the work that he has done. And that is one of the many reasons that we are studying the ten plagues that have come upon Egypt and upon Pharaoh. And today, as we come to this eighth plague, we come to a place where God says that very clearly. He tells Moses, I want to make sure you tell these things to your son and your grandson. He wants Moses to teach future generations about what he did to the Egyptians and what he did in Egypt. There are things here that we need to be taught and things here we need to be reminded of. And so as we walk through this text today, I just want to call our attention to a few things that especially as parents, as grandparents, we need to make really sure we're passing down to the next generation. Because sadly in the church today, it is very possible for us to gather each Sunday, for us to sing each Sunday, for us to preach and worship each Sunday and not pass this faith on. We have to be intentional. And one of the responsibilities I have as a pastor, Pastor Nick, Pastor Matt have as pastors, is to equip you to to, to better pass these things on to your kids and to your grandkids. And so I want to mention this morning, before we get into this text specifically, a few resources we have available just to help you. These are actually free. You can pick them up today. They're just outside of the welcome desk. One is called Helping Your Children Understand the Gospel. Sometimes it's a struggle for us as parents, grandparents, just to clearly communicate and help our kids understand what the Gospel of Christ is all about. And this book does a great job with that. There's also some great resources on memorizing Scripture and memorizing some things from God's Word that we need to pass on. There's a couple of those books out there. And then for you adults, perhaps some of you, as you hear these things, you're thinking, I'm not sure I can really clearly articulate what my kids need to learn because I don't know that I fully understand it. There's a resource here that I would love to give you as well. It's called The Essential Jesus. Read the Gospel of Jesus for yourself. And this is the Gospel of Luke put together just in paragraph form where you can just read it and, and consider The life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, and how He calls us to repentance and faith. Those are all available just outside this door. I encourage you to pick them up. They are free. We want to pass them on to you because we want to make sure we are equipping our church to teach the next generation. And I want to make sure we consider that as we look at this text today. So if you'll look with me, the first thing we're going to look at is point one. We need to teach our children how God deals with sin. We need to teach our children how God deals with sin. And in order to teach our children how God deals with sin, we need to start by teaching our children what sin is and that we are all, in fact, sinners. You have probably had a conversation, a situation where you found someone saying something along these lines. Kids are just the most precious things in the world. They're so innocent. And they're so perfect, and they're just, they're just beautiful. They're, they're just innocent little angels from God. You might call that person a non-parent. <laughs> That's perhaps how we might consider those kids if we've forgotten what it was like to have little kids. But I'm going to guess for most of us, once we get those kids home, that when it's three in the morning and we're cleaning up another diaper, another mess, or as they get older and they're picking up their oatmeal as we teach them to eat it, and they decide eat it means throw it on the ground, and they just keep throwing it on the ground, and the walls, and their hair, and your hair. Most of us in that moment don't say, you're just the most precious thing ever. You're just so innocent. Most of us in that moment realize, there's rebellion here. (laughs) This might seem a bit cute. It might make for a good little photo to put up on Facebook. But at the heart of it, when that child picks up that oatmeal for the 1,000th time and throws it on the wall, that's not innocence coming out. There's rebellion coming out. And what the Scripture teaches us is that all of us are born with rebellious hearts towards God. And this is very important for us to not only understand but to teach this future generation because we tend to absorb what the culture around us teaches. And what the culture around us teaches is that people in general are good. What the culture around us says is, no, that child is innocent. And no, people do have good hearts. And so you'll hear people all the time say things like, well, their heart was in the right place. Well, they had such a, a good heart. And of course, you'll hear that advice throughout our culture. Follow your heart. The, the belief of our culture is that we are in general good people with a few bad seeds. But what the Scripture teaches us is very different than that. The Scripture teaches us, no, there is not one who's good, not even one Because there is a seed that came from Adam and Eve that comes down among us and we inherit from them a sin nature. The only person ever born with a good heart, with an innocent heart, was Adam and Eve at creation in the garden. But what happened there? In the garden, Adam and Eve rebelled against God. God gave them a clear set of parameters. He gave them dominion over that garden. He said that they had control, that they were to cultivate, that they were to be in charge. But he put a tree in that garden to remind them that they didn't have ultimate dominion, that they weren't in control of everything, that they weren't God. And he said to them, here is the boundary. And what did they do? In their rebellion against God, they crossed that boundary. And when they did, they sinned. And what the Scripture teaches us is that every person born since Adam and Eve, from their line, apart from Christ, who was fully God and fully man, everyone else has inherited that sin nature from Adam. Romans chapter 5 tells us, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And so what we need to understand as we start to have this conversation with our kids about the consequence of sin, is we need to understand that every one of us in this room is born a sinner. And so when the world around us says, well, you just need to follow your heart, you just need to trust your heart, we need to have the response to them from God's Word that, well, I can't trust my heart because my heart's going to deceive me. And I'm guessing if we went through this room this morning, we would have testimony after testimony of how your heart and my heart have indeed deceived us. Prophet Jeremiah said it this way, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so we have before us in God's Word this clear contrast between what the Word says about the heart of man and what the world says about the heart of man. And so we need to make sure we are teaching our kids and our grandkids what the Word says about man's heart. It says that we are wicked and we are depraved. And we need to remember that, and then that helps us then to understand better what we're reading in these plagues. Because what seems to stump so many in the plagues is where we start out here in Exodus chapter 10. The Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart. So many of us, when we hear that verse, deep down we think, that's not very fair. That, that doesn't seem very fair of God that he would harden Pharaoh's heart. I mean, we don't have a problem with looking at Pharaoh and his own wickedness and the things he does, but we kind of Push back, we recoil against that because it doesn't seem fair that God would harden Pharaoh's heart. But we don't think it's fair because we don't understand truly the condition of Pharaoh's heart. As we've studied the plagues, I hope you've noticed that in the first five plagues, we don't read that God hardens the Pharaoh's heart. In the first five plagues, we read that either Pharaoh's heart was just hard Or that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And so the sequence that's taking place here is Pharaoh's a wicked king. Pharaoh, as I've mentioned before, is not about to walk down the aisle and repent and confess Christ. Pharaoh is a wicked man with a wicked heart. And what God does with the wickedness of man's heart is he will call us to repentance. And we will either repent and believe or our heart will become harder. And the scripture teaches us That there are times in our life where God will give us over to the hardness of our heart. That God will give us over to our rebellion against him. And so as we read about the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, we are seeing this take place as this hard-hearted king only grows harder in his heart towards God. Now notice this, verse 2. What is it that God wants Moses to teach his son and his grandson? He says that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. And notice this. When we think about the plagues and the exodus and what happened there in Egypt, we tend to think about how God delivers His people, and we should. I pointed out before, there's a picture of the gospel here. They were enslaved in captivity. They couldn't free themselves. God sends a deliverer to them who rescues them from their slavery. He saves them. He delivers them. And he takes them to the promised land. That's a picture of the gospel. And we certainly should celebrate that and remember that. But notice here, God specifically says, I want to make sure you tell your kids and your grandkids how I dealt with the Egyptians. What is God saying there? God is saying to Moses, you need to remind your children how I deal with sin. You need to remind your children of the consequence of sin. And we could spend a lot of time this morning <laughs> talking about the problems in our culture and the problems with other people's kids and the problems with how they're raising their kids and the problems with kids today and problem there, problem there and point outside like it's all the world's fault. But let's look inside for a second. Let's look inside our own homes. When you discipline your kids, when I discipline my kids, what is normally our focus? So often our focus when we discipline kids is on right behavior. You have done the wrong thing and you should have done the right thing and so you're getting disciplined so that you'll stop doing the wrong thing and you'll start doing the right thing. I'm not saying that that's all wrong. And I'm certainly not suggesting that we don't discipline our kids when they do the wrong thing. But what I want to point out is this. We have generations in the church today who have grown up in this form of discipline where we're told stop doing the wrong thing and start doing the right thing and they completely don't understand the gospel because they equate the gospel to that same instruction. I've sinned and I need to stop. The Bible says I should do this, and I need to start. And they see the gospel that way. Perhaps you see the gospel that way this morning. I need to stop doing bad stuff. I need to start doing good stuff. What's the problem with that? Try it and see. Think of something in your life right now that you've struggled with. Think of something in your life right now that you have said to yourself or to someone else, I'm going to stop doing this. Did you stop? There might have been something you were able to give up, some vice you went without, but by and large, we're not able just to stop and suddenly become perfect people, are we? Because the inclination of our heart is towards sin. And so here's what I think we need to remember. When it comes to disciplining our kids, when it comes to teaching our kids the difference between right things and wrong things, we need to make sure we're speaking of the gospel. And so I'll give you an example hypothetically of course because my kids would never do anything wrong but hypothetically here let's say that one of my kids was playing with another picked up a toy and knocked the other one in the head hypothetically speaking of course Well, you can go into that room and you can say, why'd you do that? I can't believe you did that. I've told you not to do that. Stop doing that. Don't you care about them? And you can give them the here and what for and up and down and you're never going to touch that toy again and you're going to Siberia. You can give them all these consequences you want. But what we need to see that is, parents, grandparents, is a gospel opportunity. The reason that you just picked up that toy and hit your brother or sister in the head is exactly the same reason that you see in God's Word, one brother pick up a rock and strike his brother with it. It's because you and I are born with a nature towards sin and rebellion. And no matter how hard you try to be a good brother or sister and love your brother and sister, you are going to be tempted to smack them in the head with an elbow. You're going to be tempted when they're playing a game to snatch that game out of their hand. You're going to be tempted when you walk in the room and nobody's looking just to do something ugly and mean to them. Why is that? It's because we are born with a heart inclined towards sin. We have a sin nature. And the only thing that's going to fix that is not going to be a vow to try harder. The only thing that's going to fix that is for you to repent and trust in Christ because Jesus Christ died on the cross for little boys and girls who were going to smack their brother and sister in the head with an Elmo. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your rebellion when you threw that oatmeal on the floor. And Jesus Christ died on the cross for daddies who were going to walk into that room, lose their temper, and start yelling at their kids. We need to help our kids understand the gospel. And when we are saying we're sorry, or we're teaching them to say they're sorry, that's a wonderful opportunity to teach them the gospel. And what we have done so often, parents, is we've missed that opportunity. And we've raised a generation and told them, well, just try harder. And now it's not going very well for us. And we need to come back to the Word of God which reminds us. No, teach our kids that we are indeed sinners and teach our kids about the grace of God and how Christ died for sin. Is there consequence for sin? Yes. But ultimately, who paid the penalty for sin? Christ did. And so we remind them of this and teach them about the gospel. Point two, we also need to teach our children that they can't bargain with God. We need to teach our kids that they can't bargain with God. Because think of how we raise kids. Life for them is a bargain, isn't it? Don't make me count to five or ten or fifty. Well, if you'll just finally do this. we'll eat your dinner. Well, I'm not going to eat it. What if I ate three bites? Well, how about two? Well, how about two and a half? And it's this auction process going on at the dinner table every night. We just bargain with them all the time. And what happens is that we tend to think somehow we can bargain with God. And you have an example of it here in Pharaoh. Notice what happens in the text. So God tells Moses, go in there to Pharaoh. uh, Tell him that he's refused to humble himself. And so as a result, I'm going to bring this plague upon the Egyptians and upon him this time he's going to bring these locusts who are going to come in the land they're going to cover the land they're going to eat whatever hasn't been destroyed by the hail they're going to do all these things and what is pharaoh's response pharaoh's response is well let me make a deal with god uh, let me bring my terms to the table you would think That Pharaoh would finally be repented. There's been indications that Pharaoh would be repented. But what we continue to see is the hardness of his heart. And it's especially hard when you consider what it is God's about to bring to Egypt this time. I mean, think about the situation in Egypt. The servants of Pharaoh bring it to his attention. They're like, look around. Everything's ruined, Pharaoh. I mean, our livestock are ruined. Whatever wasn't killed by one plague got killed by another plague. Trees have been knocked down. The hails destroyed virtually everything. And now Moses and Aaron are saying that the locusts are going to come and anything that hasn't been just devastated already by all these other plagues, they're just going to wipe out. And they would understand what that means because they lived in a place in the world where swarms of locusts would devastate crops. Some of us, Myself included, may not be as familiar with that. and So this week I studied a bit on it to make sure I understood it more. I learned that a locust uh, daily will consume food equal to their weight. And that doesn't seem all that overwhelming until you consider that the vast scale, the vast numbers of locusts that come together in a swarm. A full-scale swarm covers several hundred square miles being made up of between 100 and 200 million locusts per mile. And so what we find is that locusts are perhaps one of nature's most awesome examples of a collective destructive power. One scientist said it this way, an adult locust weighs at a maximum 2 grams, and its combined destructive force can leave thousands of people with famine for years in some cases decades, in some cases even centuries. And there have been times in our world we've seen this happen in the 1920s and 30s. Locusts swept across Africa, wiped out 5 million square miles of vegetation. To just put that in perspective, that's double the size of the United States. All this from a swarm of locusts. And here... Pharaoh and his people are being told there's going to be a swarm of locusts that come that are so intense you've never seen one like it and you're never going to see another one like it and they're going to devastate absolutely everything. You would think that would convince Pharaoh but because of the hardness of the heart it doesn't so he begins to try to make a deal with God. Tries to make a deal with Moses and Aaron. Look at what he says to him. He says, well, okay, who's going to go with you? I'm going to let you go, verse 8 there, but, but, but which ones are to go? Now, we might read this and think that Pharaoh's looking for clarity, but if you've been with us in the study of the plagues, God's make it, made it very clear to Pharaoh who's going to go. He wants him to let all his people go. Men, women, children, all of them. And so what Pharaoh is doing here is not looking for clarity. What Pharaoh is doing here is he's trying to exert his authority. He's saying, okay, God, you've asked for this, and okay, I'll do some of that, but I'm not coming all the way, God. You've got to come down, and you've got to come to my terms here because Pharaoh wants to be in control. Just like you and I today, we want to be in control. And so we have the clear instruction of God's Word. In every area of our life, God's Word is emphatically clear on how we are to live, what we are to do, what our relationships are to look like, what our purity is to look like, what our integrity is to look like, what our faith is to look like. But so often we look at that and ask, God, here's your standard. And if I look around me, nobody's really coming close to that. So it's all kind of come this far. And we tend to comfort ourselves in saying, well, at least I'm doing this right. At least I'm doing this thing, God says. But what we end up doing is we kind of bargain with God, don't we? And here's usually the bargain. God, as long as you do this, I'll do this. Or God, if I do this, I expect you to do this. And everything goes well and good in that little bargain relationship until something bad happens to us. And when something bad happens to us, so often how we respond to that is we look to God and say, well, God, you didn't hold up your end of the deal. I was faithful. I went to church. I gave to the church. I volunteered in the church. I went to a Sunday school class. I even went to church on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. I did all these things, God. My baby wasn't supposed to get sick. My family member wasn't supposed to struggle with this disease. I wasn't supposed to lose my job, God, because I did things the right way, surrounded by people who do things the wrong way. You were supposed to reward me, remember? And we have this deal in our mind with God. We bargain with God and we get upset as if he hasn't kept his end of the deal up. I'll never forget years ago, I was at a funeral visitation for a man in our church. We were in there in Bowling Green and this man was a leader in the church. He volunteered in the church. He served as a deacon in our church and his mom had passed away. And he was having a hard time, as he should have been, with his mom passing away. But I'll never forget my conversation with him at the visitation. And he said to me, much of what I just said to you, he said, Richard, this isn't how it's supposed to happen. Because I did everything I was supposed to do. I've been at church, and he went on to tell me all the things he'd done in the church, and how long he'd been in the church, and, and how he'd done this, 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 and this. And so God was supposed to Take care of his mom. And I'll never forget, he looked at me He said, Richard, God didn't hold his end of the deal up. And so I'm not going to hold my end of the deal up anymore. I'm just going to go live however I want to if this is how God's going to reward my faith. Now, you may not have ever said that. <laughs> but in our hearts, so often... That's what we are tempted to think. God, I did what I was supposed to do. How come you haven't done what you were supposed to do? And when we come to the plagues and we come to Pharaoh, we are reminded, friends, that we are not in a bargain relationship with God. God has called us to walk by faith whether we are blessed or we are suffering. God has not promised you or I a life of health and a life of wealth. He has promised us something better. Better. Do you know God promises that one day you and I will never struggle with our health again? That, that God promises one day you're never going to go to the mailbox and get another bill. <laughs> you're never going to struggle with finances or material things. Do you know that in God's Word, the implication is everything's not going to break one week? And we're going to go through weeks where nobody dies. And centuries when nobody dies. And eons when nobody dies. Because God promises us a new heaven and a new earth. And He promises us that one day He will make all things new. And if we're not careful, we substitute for that great promise of God a small bargain of man. I want my health and my wealth now lord and like the young man that jesus tells the story of we go to our father and we say i want my inheritance now (laughs) so we can go squandering but the lord reminds us in his word we are not to bargain with him because there's no need to bargain with him trust me we've got the better end of this deal god gave his son who knew no sin on the cross for you and i While we were still yet sinners, the Scripture says, God demonstrated His love towards us. While we were rebellious towards God, while we were shaking our fists at God, while we were in funeral homes saying, well, God didn't do what I thought He was going to do, so I'm not going to do what He said that I should do. Jesus died for us that we might have eternal life in Him. And what God is telling His people to remind their kids and their grandkids of as they're on this journey to the promised land is, listen, let's not bargain with God. And consider how important that will be as they attempt to bargain with Him on that exodus. They're reminded of in this example of Pharaoh that God has called us to complete and total obedience. And we need to remind our children of that as well. Point three. Point three. We need to teach our children then to be humble before God and man. Think of the examples our kids have in our culture today. Examples in the entertainment world. Examples in the world of athletics. Examples in politics today. I'm just going to guess the word humility doesn't come to mind, does it? We, we are sur- surrounded by proud prideful men and women who say look at me and the scripture reminds us that the gospel calls us to a place of humility and one of the fundamental things you see here in pharaoh is he is unwilling to humble himself and for us who wrestle with pride that this should be a big light indicating from the scripture where our pride will take us and where it will take those in our culture today. Now, the Scripture teaches us that we need to humble ourselves. And here's what we see in Pharaoh. If we will not humble ourselves before God, God will humiliate us. And what you see here in this plague is another example of how God is humiliating Pharaoh and the Egyptians and the Egyptian gods. Because once again, He is bringing judgment on their false gods. That There were many false gods of Egypt associated with the crops one of them that they worship was men, M-I-N. Men worshipped, Worshipers held an annual festival, and they would worship this god men, and they would coincide it with when all the crops were coming in, and they would thank men for the crops. And many, as they've studied this passage in the context there in Egypt, believe that this plague actually coincided with this annual festival where they were worshipping men. Consider the humiliation of that. Well, we're going to gather up the family and we're going to go there and we're going to have this festival and we're going to celebrate this God of the harvest. That this God who gives us our daily bread and they can't even see the path to get there because it's covered with locusts who are wiping out every green thing in the land. And this false God of Egypt that was supposed to give them their daily bread, well, he fails, doesn't he? God will humble the Egyptians and humble Pharaoh. And this will be a lesson He'll continue to teach His people because as you look ahead, God's people struggle with this issue later, don't they? Of whether or not they can trust God for their daily bread. And God has a way of humbling His people and stripping them of their pride to show them that ultimately they need to trust in Him. Scripture tells us, James 4, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble and therefore humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you and so friends I hope this morning you'll be reminded that these are things we need to teach our kids but I want to leave you with this don't walk away from here thinking that somehow you can do this in your own strength that you can be humble that you can stop bartering with God, that you can fully understand the consequence of sin and overcome sin. If you walk out of here today thinking you just need to try harder to do those things, then I've done a really bad job. And so I want to make sure to leave you with this text that reminds us that the only way to fully understand the consequence of sin, the only way to escape from this pattern of bargaining with God, the only way to be truly humble before God is to trust in Christ. Because He did all those things. And we see all of them in in Philippians 2. He, or excuse me, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The consequence of sin ultimately is death. And so either you're going to die for your sin or you're going to trust in someone who's perfect and dies for your sin. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He paid the consequence. Jesus didn't bargain with God in the process. In fact, we see Him there before His crucifixion going to God in prayer. And He doesn't say to God, Well, God, let me make a deal with You. God, let's work this out another way. He says, God, if this cup can pass, if it be Your will... But not my will, but yours be done. And then, of course, he brings himself to full obedience through humility, coming to the point of death, even death on the cross. So the question for us this morning is why wouldn't we trust in Christ? Why would we continue to trust in ourselves and to trust in this notion that somehow we can try harder and be better? Friends, you can try harder all your life. You will not save yourself. And so this morning, as we come to this time of invitation, the invitation is clear. It's for us to trust in the one who has delivered through Christ Jesus, to repent of our sin and place our faith in him. So if you will stand together as I pray for us this morning. Father, You are the same God who rained down these plagues upon Egypt. You are the same God who delivered Your people from centuries of slavery to take them on a journey to the land of promise. You are the same God that we come to in prayer right now who demonstrated Your love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You are the same God who calls us today to repentance and to faith. And so, Father, I pray that would be our response. That as we look to our life today, as we consider the condition of our own heart, that we would not consider ourselves to be a people who can trust their heart or follow their heart, a people who have good hearts, that we would see ourselves as people who have hearts that would deceive us. And perhaps even now, they are deceiving us into thinking we can just try harder. Lord, would you remind us of your saving work through the exodus and the saving work you're offered today and that call to repentance. Would you do a work now through the power of your Holy Spirit? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.